0: Hello there, I'm Patrick Stroth, President of Rubicon M&A Insurance Services. Welcome to M&A Masters, where I speak with the leading experts in mergers and acquisitions. And we're all about one thing here, that's a clean exit for owners, founders, and their investors. Today, I'm joined by Brian Davis, founder of AltaCrest Capital. AltaCrest is a Dallas-based private investment firm focused on investing in consumer brands with enthusiasts customer bases, largely through e-commerce. Brian, it's a pleasure to have you. Welcome
1: to the show. Thank you for having me. It's a joy to be on.
0: Now, we're going to get into Alta Crest and where you're dealing with all the cool kids with the enthusiastic customer (laughs) brands, all that stuff. But before we get into that, let's start with you. What brought you to this point in your career?
1: Sure. No, um, it's been a bit of an entrepreneurial journey for myself, you know, which has been fun because we get to work with a lot of founders of these uh, young brands that are kind of going to the next level. But uh, I have a similar background to uh, my two partners. We both came or all three of us came from large financial institutions. Um, And, you know, I, I worked at Prudential Private Capital for about 15 years. Wonderful group, wonderful people, really enjoyed it. Um, however, you know, the transaction sizes were getting bigger and bigger and um, I frankly wanted to do something where I could be a little more hands-on and, and have a bigger uh, impact on helping to grow, you know, smaller uh, middle market companies. And so, for me, it was a great fit to, to make the transition and make the leap from the big firm and then, um, you know, head up into AltaCrest Capital, which we did about three years ago. Uh, and uh, my two partners uh, were in a similar uh, state of mind. Uh, one of them, Tim Lachkowski, he and I worked together at Prudential for about 15 years. And then uh, Rick Sukar, who was at JP Morgan for, for quite a while as well. So it's been a good fit for all of us. Well, now you didn't name it after after the founders, which is why you know, you're,
0: know. I would say, uh, the less creative law firms and insurance firms are, they just name things after the founders. Right, and I like I like getting an insight for a company, their culture and their background. A lot of it comes down to how they were named. So let's start with Alta Crest and how how'd you name it, and then let's talk about Alta Crest.
1: Sure, it's actually the ancient Roman god of. No, I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) Nothing to do with that. Uh, We actually do have a little bit of a, a family connection to it. So Tim. I mentioned earlier, was actually the first one uh, to leave the big institution. And uh, he went out on his own uh, and originally came up with the name Alta Crest. And it's an acronym of his uh, family's name. He's got his wife, Amy, and his sons, Luke, Tate, and Andrew. And so that's the Alta. And then uh, they loved a vacation in, in Crested Butte and have done it for years and years. And it's a beautiful place. Um, when Rick and I joined, it was interesting because we're like, well, that's a pretty personal sounding name for, for Tim. And we were all coming in as equal partners, um, but we, we liked the vibe, you know, frankly, because we're three of us all been married a long time. We've all got multiple kids and um, you know, very family oriented. Uh, and so it just, uh, it seemed like a great fit. And so we stuck with it.
0: Well, I, th- I think, and and Tim, Tim's last name, pronounce it again for me.
1: Latchkowski.
0: Okay. If you see the spelling of it, that's a real tricky way if you started using <laughs> that same formula to put everybody's name in there I, th- I think it would have been even more duck soup so um, right right it, i i think you took the path of least resistance and, and and you did that one of the things you mentioned is how you had been in in the larger institutional capital and, mm-hmm. and we'll find out on a fe- future episode actually about your firm prudential capital where they are not as institutional as you might think uh, yep. but you were up there and the deals were getting bigger and bigger and that's been the trend for a lot of private equity firms as things get bigger and bigger over time but you're committed to the lower middle market like we are T- talk about that a little bit why there why do you want to get your hands dirty
1: uh, i love it you know we're dealing with uh mainly companies from about 2 million of ebitda up to call it 10. and quite frankly at that point you oftentimes it's a founder who had a wonderful idea and is great at getting the company launched um, and gets to a certain point where you know he or she you know wants a little help you know taking it to the next level um, and it's it's a situation where you know they've got really good management teams and they're they're beginning to, to build those out but there's still a lot of room for for growth and um, the nice thing about you know coming from a place like you know, prudential where we uh provide capital to some larger companies you know we've seen the roadmap, you know so we know what those companies look like at that size and we've got a good sense for for how to help these businesses get there um and it's great i mean there's a lot of them at the lower middle market just in terms of the volume of uh types of companies that are there uh but it's also just uh you know there's just more help that they need and, and more kind of value that they can do you get into the the consumer product side. There's been some unique things with e-commerce and things like that that have even driven even more, uh, you know, need for and and more development of some of these younger companies that are are growing rapidly and uh, have really you know taken advantage of the some changing in consumer behavior.
0: Yeah, I think what's exciting about this is first of all, there's a large marketplace out there when you look at the lower middle market. So there's I, I would almost say idyllically, there's plenty for everybody, but this segment of the market is really underserved and what's fantastic is, you know, you get these owner and founders and you're right, they can take from nothing and create something, but they can't scale it. And Mm -hmm. get to a point of inflection where, okay, we're, you know, we're not really small, but we're not big. What do we do? And a lot of times if they're not informed, they may default to a strategic that may or may not have their best interests at heart. And so if they don't do that, they go to an institution that maybe can't meet all of their needs, but will charge them a lot more money, and, and that's not serving them better. So it's great that we can go ahead, put AltaCrest Capital out there and really highlight you as a destination, particularly for consumer brands in, in e-commerce. That's a nice niche where, hey, here's a place to turn because you know they're getting the benefits of the experience from an institutional-sized team, but at the boutique level. And so I think that's fantastic. So it was a thrill to be able to to, to have you there and and to spotlight a firm like Altacrest Capital. When you're looking at this class of business, why why this this line of business, the the consumer products and the e-commerce? Why not just consumer products or whatever? Tell me about that
1: yeah it's been fun so uh one of my partners rick sukar uh he's been in consumer products for 20 plus years you know he did the big jp morgan institutional MA uh investment banking thing and then about you know 10 years ago or more now uh he went out on the operating side and so he's been in operations on some of these smaller consumer brands that are growing um and in his instance uh it was more omni channel and by that we mean Brick and mortar, e-commerce, any type of channel you can think of to sell your your widgets in, um, but where he saw a lot of you know growth and where they had a lot of success was was on the the e-commerce side. Um, you know, Tim and I come from a, 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 a more of a background that's a strong co- focus on free cash flow generation, margins, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of the great things that we learned through our uh, investing time at, at Prudential, and when you took the experiences that the three of us had. had And this was early in our formation. Like I said, we've been together for about three years. We fine-tuned around this investment thesis around e-commerce. And the reason for that is a couple of things. One, you've got a massive tailwind behind you. And this, you know, we obviously came up with this thesis before COVID, uh, but obviously that's helped it as well. But you've got the shift of people going from brick and mortar to e-commerce, and so that's a nice tailwind. The other aspect of it is uh, the ability to grow a young brand um, can be very cash efficient. Uh, You can outsource the manufacturing, you can do the product design in-house, so you can keep from a, a capital expenditure standpoint from a working capital standpoint, you can keep it relatively manageable too. And so it's a great little free cash flow generation model. And so you take some of the industry aspects, some of the business model aspects of it, and we're like, this, this makes a lot of sense. Yeah, we we really want to focus on this. And so we bought our first company, um, Barton Watch Bands uh, in November of 2018. And um, it's been a great ride. I mean, we're seeing just a lot of those things uh, you know, play out. Now, we did not anticipate, you know, a global pandemic. So, yeah. that wasn't part of the uh, investment thesis or underwriting. Neither, neither do the people
0: from Zoom. Yes.
1: Right. But, but, but they're doing okay. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, but uh, but no, we've been, you know, fine-tuning that since then. And and the other part of it that, that made sense for us to, to, to focus on this niche is uh, really our network. And we call it our AltaCrest ecosystem, if you will. But it's, we're, we're pretty hands-on, you know, we, we help out a lot with anything from operations, uh, whether it's, you know, uh, bringing in a, a consultant that we've worked with for a long period of time to help, uh, refine things to hiring COOs, uh, on the marketing side, we get, you know, involved in terms of helping out on digital marketing strategies, different agencies to work with different particular people to work with. Um, PR, uh, et cetera. So there's a lot of different ways that we try to bring resources to bear to these small companies that that didn't have them before um, in an effort to accelerate growth. And so that's, you know, sort of our experience level coupled with what's going on in the industry, uh, seemed like a good fit for us. And so, and it's been fun. We've done three acquisitions now and and hoping to do do more as we keep going
0: and with this what you're bringing to the table is now you've got the experience in that particular space so you're not just doing financial engineering you've got hands-on operations and we'll talk about it later but you're also dealing with a human element uh that gets you know can be vexing quite frankly for owners and founders particularly in e-commerce and the consumer brands because their 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 focus is elsewhere and that's a a big blind spot or can be a a tragic blind spot for them with uh your structure okay as an investment firm you're not a you know big fund private equity firm. Let's talk about your setup. Why did you structure as a, otherwise known as an independent sponsor? Mm-hmm. What flexibility or what what strengths does do you derive from that as opposed to you know having a big fund behind you?
1: We like it for a number of reasons. Um, you know one, you know capital availability hasn't been the biggest hindrance to, to doing deals for for a while and that does nice. ebb and flow depending on what's going on in the uh, the uh, economy and things like that but for attractive investments capitals generally generally available um, you know what's been harder to find is you know attractive deals and in, in sectors that are uh, in something that, that we wanted to be in and so um, you know two things led to you know us doing the independent sponsor model one, frankly just being honest is a a, a lack of of history of the three of us investing together within this investment strategy and so that's something that is typically desirable in terms of pulling together a a committed fund um is a track record of investing in the same strategy with the same people for over a, a period of time um you know the the other part of it is the fact that uh we just like it. We like the flexibility. Uh, we have a lot of relationships, uh, both institutional and high net worth. If you look at the capital that, you know, we've put into our acquisitions, it's it's some of our own capital, uh, in addition to um, a mixture of high net worth individuals and institutions. Uh, most of those high net worth individuals, frankly, are, are four more uh, Private equity guys okay. and women uh, of of some ilk, and so we like that too because it's a nice value added base that, frankly, we use to uh, uh, you know bounce questions off of from time to time uh, as well in some of our portfolio companies.
0: And I would think for sustainability long long term, you're having this experience with these investors, and you're you know having a track record of success. Should something change in the future, and you need to pivot? you can turn to them with a real great track record. And if you did have to make a fund, set up a fund, well, then you've got that source. So I think that you're keeping all of your options open and you're looking out for obviously what's best for the companies that you're investing, you're partnering with. And so why don't we talk about that? What's your profile of of a target? What's your ideal profile?
1: Sure. I mean, I think the best way to answer that might be just giving you an example of a recent transaction that we did. so, in September of last year, so, you know, right in the middle of COVID, uh, we closed on a transaction with a company called Big Dot of Happiness. Big Dot of Happiness makes party supplies. Uh, so, think of things that you're going to hand out at a bridal shower, a birthday party, or a 50th, you know, celebration of whatever graduation celebration. Um, and right there, you may think we're absolutely insane—that you know, we're we're buying a company that is built around the gathering of people in the middle of a pandemic when you can't gather people. But um, that's uh, we, you know, the process started before COVID began in terms of us, you know, having conversations, and it got it admittedly got stalled for a while as as we all uh, digested what was going on in the world. But uh, but this is a great example of a of a management team and and a founder. Uh, who are just really impressive and they uh, successfully pivoted from doing, you know, a paper invitation that says come to my party uh, to uninvitations. Hey, you're not invited to my party because I can't have one. Um, and the beauty of that business, and this is part of the beauty of e-commerce is, you know, they have in-house creative, they have in-house manufacturing, and they have the logistics to get the uh, product out the door very quickly. So they can go from idea to in a customer's you know home in about forty eight hours, um, which is what allowed them to pivot as quickly as they did, um, and so it's a it's a really nice business. Uh, we think that uh, they've done a great job pivoting through the, the the transition that we had. We think obviously as gatherings start to come uh, back together and you know vaccinations uh, increase, et cetera, that it's a uh, uh, a great business you know to be in. But the, the the rationale for the transaction was: this is a founder that had built the business over twenty years. Um, she wanted a partner to help her take it to the to the next level. Uh, you know, she is you know incredibly talented at at what she she does, but she's been doing that particular uh, work for for twenty years. We've got a, some other experiences, obviously, that we've had in our careers. And are trying to bring some of those experiences to bear you know one of the things right now we're working on is uh the operation side you know we recently hired a new coo and we're super excited to have him on board and we think that we can create even more of these wonderful uh, little products in an even more efficient way with with somebody like that um and so uh they wanted some you know partner help in growing and and things like that um, but they also saw upside in the business going forward. So that's another common thing that we see in our transaction is uh, a degree of rollover equity. So the founder typically owns, call it 15 to 30 percent post deal, um, and kind of gets that proverbial second bite at the apple. And so um, we don't we don't require that, but it seems to be all three deals that we've done have had that element, which has been been interesting.
0: I don't imagine your type of target looking for an exit. At closing right
1: now they want to bring it to the next level most do i mean like i said there's there's pretty good tailwind in the industry mm-hmm. um you know and and COVID has done nothing but accelerate that i mean there's some interesting trends that we could talk about in consumer products where you know not all things are created equal it depends on what product categories you're in as to how COVID has impacted you and how you're likely to perform coming out of it but uh but yes, we, we believe that there's still a lot of uh, a runway to go and a lot of great growth, and and we're excited to partner with them and, and help them achieve that.
0: Well, I, I think this is a great opportunity for this particular organization, because I'll tell you just from personal experience, if you're planning uh, parties for a nine or 10 year old girl, it is amazing how quickly her tastes change. <laughs> and you may have one theme one week, and then a week later, and quite frankly, this happened, uh, the, I'm dating myself, but the, the movie, uh, Peabody and Sherman came out, and my yeah. daughter automatically went from a princess type theme uh, party to she wanted Peabody and Sherman in a week. Right, uh, right. And and that's you know scramble for my wife who wants to please her and everything and be a, you know good mom. And, Absolutely. And
1: so we that, like competitive moms. That's a yeah, good thing. So
0: <laughs> I think that's a, I, th- I think that's outstanding. One of the things that you know, and I mentioned earlier on this is that you know the target you're 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 coming for are uh you know owners and founders because you're you're at the lower middle market these these organizations are just getting up up, off the ground and you cannot remove the human element from these deals and as fun and exciting as these deals are they don't happen in a vacuum there's risk and what's dangerous is where you have an experienced buyer like you and your team that is working with an inexperienced they're not you know, any lack of anything else, they just don't do M&A every day. And so there are a lot of things that are familiar and routine for you through the process, and they're not familiar with the process, which can, you know, cause some stress. And, you know, going through the diligence process is one example. And once they've gone through that, they have the talk with their attorney about indemnification Mm -hmm. and how what they hear in this, and they're not experienced, but, you know, they hear the buyers essentially telling them, Look, I know we just went through this whole due diligence, but hey, in case we missed anything, (laughs) we're going to leave you on the hook to pay any of our losses for X number of years down the road. But you know what? This is routine. There's probably nothing out there, but you know what? You're on the hook. And, And then the seller's looking, again, not experienced, thinking, wait a minute. I just told you everything I know. You can't hold me responsible, financially responsible for something that I didn't know about and the buyer whose experience is going to have the immediate response that says, "Well, wait a minute, I'm betting maybe tens of millions of dollars that your memory is perfect. And I'm sorry, we just can't do that. And so you have this, what started as a collaborative process through all this wear and tear, you're at risk of it descending to uh, an acrimonious, almost adversarial situation. And, you know, all of a sudden you've injected distrust into this. And is part of the process and you know the the seller eventually when the deal closes and the dust settles they may forgive the process but they don't forget it right and the tragedy about that is all that can be avoided and what's very exciting w- with us in the insurance industry is you know we just come in and we're going to insure these deals and so we will take through this product called rep and warranty insurance we take the indemnity obligation away from the seller And we take it to the insurance company. So we just look at what the buyer's diligence was on the seller reps. If they checked them out, hey, if those reps later get breached, come to us, buyer, we will pay you. You don't have to go ahead and claw back anything from the seller. So buyer has certainty of of return if anything happens. Seller, well, the insurance replaces some or all of the escrow. So they get more cash at close and so they don't have as much withheld. But even better, they get the peace of mind knowing that, hey, if something does blow up. You know what? They get to keep all their money because the insurance company's got to take care of it. And yeah. the tragedy is, is that if that isn't brought in, then you risk this kind of acrimony happening. And if it's done right for the buyer, all they do is offer this coverage to the seller. The cost is so low, the seller will gladly pay the premium on this. So it's cost-free to the buyer, arguably. A lot of times they split the cost, it's out there and you know it's just a nice elegant solution it was not available this insurance was not available for for deals under 100 million a couple years ago it has now fallen down where companies that are transaction value of 10 million uh as low as 10 million dollars are now eligible and so you know that's a great thing that we can now bring to the lower middle market that wasn't there yeah but you know don't take my word for it you know brian Good, bad, or indifferent. What experience have you and your team had with with wrap and warranty insurance?
1: No, I'm I'm a fan. I mean, I've I've been doing you know transactions long enough to have been on both sides of it. Back when there wasn't insurance that was offered, um, I remember back when. I mean, you had to be really big you know transactions for you know, RWI insurance to, to to be in play. Um, and I think it's great to see it come down, uh, Mark. And it's it is for the reasons you talk about because. You know, you go through these transactions, and everybody does a ton of diligence, and you think that you've uncovered everything. Um, and I've, especially in situations where where we are, where we're typically buying it from a founder, and um, you know, they typically are still owning a chunk of the company going forward. And so, in and I've had situations where you know, unknowingly, there's a breach of the rep you know there was something out there that they didn't realize and you know there's either litigation coming in or it, it's a problem And it and i've been in situations where it's a material and so it's enough to where you're gonna have to you know discuss and negotiate you know a reasonable outcome um and that is it's it's a really hard place to be um it's a hard place to be if they're your partner and they own part of the business it's an extremely hard place to be if they're still running that business <laughs> and so that's a that's a part of it uh as well that 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 occurs and so um we're we prefer to use uh rep and warranty insurance in our in our transactions for those reasons. Um, you know, there is a little bit more uh diligence on the the upside, but frankly on the front side, but that's that's a good thing. You know, I think figuring out more things before the deal happens as opposed to after is is always a good thing. Um and and I would say, I mean, you know, the cost is you know, is fine. I mean, there's these transactions are not yeah, you know, we're super cheap in terms of transaction expenses, um, and we all too are try to do our part to keep them keep them down and that sort of thing. But um, you know, in, in my mind, it's not an area to skimp in, and it can really improve the relationship, uh, you yeah, know, post deal.
0: Yeah, I can't. I'm I'm almost borderline on the part unless rep and warranty isn't for every deal. There are some deals that just aren't gonna, you know, be eligible for it. Sure. where is available particularly if the seller and i'm brought in by a lot of sellers and seller advisors and the investment bankers to, to get the pricing in front but you know if they're willing to pay for it, i would almost think it's just an act of good faith on the part of the buyer to say look if you're if, if you're going to pay for fine let's let's move forward you know where where we see situations which are unfortunate or where you've got some buyer that's you know 400 times the size of the target company and they're just going to use leverage because they can't. And and that that's trash. But, you know, then again, hey, another reason why a firm like Alta Crest Capital would be a lot more desirable cuz they're going to have good faith and work with you.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, and I think it's, uh, I mean, as a selling point as a buyer, if you say, yeah, we're happy to do a, a rep and warranty policy as opposed to a big escrow, you know, it's generally very advantageous to the, the seller. And so uh, that's a good thing. And I would say when it, when, when rep and warranty insurance first came out, I would say there was a little bit of trepidation of, you know, if you go, if you have a breach and you're going against the policy to get, you know, made whole, uh, what's the likelihood of getting the claim, you know, relative to getting it out of an escrow from a seller. Um, And there was, you know, concern when this was a more nascent industry. I, I personally have not had a claim. So I have to, Give that caveat, uh, Knock on wood. Against a, right. I guess an insurance, uh, uh, provider, uh, for, for reps and warranties, but, um, I have been counseled by people that are very involved in including legal counsel and others that, uh, frankly, they're seeing it every bit as good, if not even better recoveries, uh, from an insurance, uh, provider, as opposed to trying to get it out of escrow. Well,
0: we just like, you know, fast, faster, cheaper, happier. That's right, right. how we go on those. So, no, but, but great great response there, Brian. Now as we're coming coming through this year now, we're, I think confidently looking at the beginning of the end of, of the pandemic. And you had referenced earlier that you're aware of trends in the consumer products area. So you know, COVID, no COVID, give, give us your perspective on, on what do you see down the road?
1: Yeah, I think it's fascinating. I mean, I think MA activity is definitely picking up, you know, the second and third quarter of last year was pretty, you know, dead. Um, and fourth quarter, first quarter, second quarter of, you know, the last three quarters have definitely been been picking up uh, just in general. Uh, within the consumer space, uh, I would say it's been picking up uh, more as well. Um, but it's interesting to see which companies are coming to market. And so within consumer world, you've got to think about, okay, in, in a COVID world, what has worked really well? Anything tied to the home, uh, mm-hmm. it, you yeah. know, because people are spending more time at home and than they ever have, and home furnishings, all that type of thing. That's been an interesting area of, of growth. Um, you know, how sustainable is that? You know, you could argue that everybody's going to go back to work and that, you know, that. You know, ride is over, but but most people, and I'm one of them, I think there's some legs to uh, to some you know ongoing you know growth within the the home industry because I don't know that people are going to go to the, back to the office five days a week. You know, there's going to be more home offices, there's going to be more people working from home than than ever ever before. So that's an interesting category to think about. And almost on the flip side of that would be apparel, especially apparel we use for yeah. work. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, if you're, you know, belts or something like that, where, uh, you know, if you're Lululemon, I'm sure they're killing it <laughs> you know, yeah. but, or, you know, anything like that, sweatpants, anything where, uh, uh, outside of a, being on a zoom call, um, you're not, not being seen day to day. Those, those, uh, categories are well, but, but apparel in general is definitely down. Um, and so I, part of the fun part of our job and part of the difficult part is figuring out, Okay we're coming out of COVID. I agree with you. It seems like we're starting to come out of COVID and more and more people are getting active and doing things, but what is it going to mean for the next two, three, five years? And we don't underwrite to, you know, six months or 12 months, but we're trying to think about five, seven, 10 years down the road. Mm -hmm. Um, but it, it's, uh, it's gonna be a, a fun ride as we we figure this out. And there's, you know, stimulus checks coming in that influence things. And, uh, you know, there's all sorts of uh, exogenous factors going on.
0: Yeah, I, I just, I, and again, I hate to, you know, make this about me, but I just, from our personal experience, we're seeing that, you know what, we may not be getting uh, home furnishings yet, but because of all the wear and tear on everybody being home, you know, mm. the last year, day in and day out, I have a feeling we've got a lot of worn out furniture. So yeah, right, those right. upgrades and then definitely the wardrobe, at least maybe temporarily because a few of us might, might've added a little bit of weight during this time. <laughs> right. So right. Some some of those office wear may not fit today. We may need a bridge.
1: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No, it's uh, all kinds of, uh, you know, unintended consequences and you're not sure exactly how it's going to play out, but, uh, but it'll be fun to watch.
0: Yeah. I and mean, we'll, it, it'll be, it'll be a great uh, seeing a comeback which which is always a lot more fun than than a uh, a shutdown or a slowdown so brian davis of alta crest capital how can our audience members find you
1: sure there's a couple ways to reach us uh our website uh feel free to take a look at us there it's altacrestcapital.com that's a-l-t-a-c-r-e-s-t-c-a-p-i-t-a-l com. Uh, if you want to reach out to me directly, uh, you can always find me at LinkedIn uh, under Brian Davis, and I spell it funny, B-R-I-E-N, mm-hmm. Davis. Uh, or feel free to reach out and, and shoot me an email at Brian, B-R-I-E-N, at AltaCrestCapital.com.
0: Yeah, in our last conversation, the way you remember Brian's name in the spelling is just think of the the Irish last name, O'Brien. Exactly. And just drop off the apostrophe and B-R-I-E-N. So I, 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 I've never forgotten that. So uh, well, <laughs> well, done, Brian. Absolute pleasure speaking with you. Fascinating with with the e-commerce and the consumer products because we're usually seeing a lot of you know business to business stuff. But real pleasure to meet you, and I look forward to talking to you again soon.
1: Thank you. It's been great talking to you as well. I enjoyed it.